Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome along to Football Digest Extra Time with myself, Ned Keating. I'm joined this morning by my good friend, Connor Bromley, as we look to run the rule over another busy weekend of Premier League action. And Connor, we're going to start this morning with Manchester United uh, and in particular Rasmus Hoyland. A uh, double for them yesterday as they beat Luton Town and a quick fire double as well. Both the goals coming within the first seven minutes for Hoyland. Um, he seems to have really, really hit form for Man United of late, hasn't he? He's really kind of, after what was, I suppose, a difficult start to the season, he, he seems to have kind of finally come good and the money that Man United spent in the summer, they've, they've finally seen a return on that. Oh, yeah, he looks a, a different... I say a different player. I think at the start of the season, he looked a good player, but he, he didn't look like he was going to score goals. He, it sort of reminded me a bit of like Darwin Nunes at times, like where Nunes goes through these periods where he, he really struggles to hit the net and he hits the ball. I mean, there was that game recently where he hit the ball like four times. He kind of had that sort of vibe of him, like good player. You know, he he, he does a lot for the team, but he, he just didn't have that cutting edge in front of goal. But you look at Hoyland now and he, he looks, he's flying, isn't he? I mean, that second goal he scored yesterday where he sort of chested it in, I, I thought that was an amazing goal. And I think when you first see it, you think, oh, it's just deflected off him. It's very lucky. It's a, it's a, one of them where when you're in good form, then things happen. But actually, I think when you watch the replay, you see that he totally means to do that. I think Gary Neville even said that on Comrie. You know, it's a, it's actually a brilliant goal because he, he's so quick to think, you know, the ball's coming at him and he turns his body in and manages to direct it with his chest. And then I, I thought it was a, a brilliant goal, but that's a, a striker who is confident, isn't it? You know, that's, I think a month ago, you know, six weeks ago, two months ago, Hoyland probably just it just hits him and goes out of play for a goal kick probably doesn't it whereas now he's so confident and fundamentally you know he scores two goals early in the game that's what means Manchester United the game that's what he was bought for you know he was bought to be the the difference in these sorts of games and I, I've been really really impressed with him but overall impressed with Manchester United I think we'll talk about them a bit more in depth but I think looking at them right now you know they look similar to the team were last season um you know and I think with you being a Spurs fan you're probably a little bit irritated by Manchester United's recent upturn in form because I think you know as I said a month two months ago most people kind of written them out of the the top four race I certainly thought it would be a really difficult uh run for them to get in but right now they look really really good value especially with Spurs dropping points at the weekend yeah, we'll come on to Man United's hopes of qualifying for the Champions League uh, just a little bit later on, but we are going to continue the Hoyland loving uh, for now, at least anyway. Um, going back to the summer, and he was only 20 when he joined Man United, one of the biggest clubs in the world. Man United spent so much money on him uh, as well. The price tag, the pressure of player for Man United. Yeah, was it, I mean, were we perhaps expecting a bit too much from him? Like I said, he was only 20 when he moved and, and you kind of look at his previous track record. I think it's a fairly modest return of only 18 league goals in, in his previous 59 appearances across his career, across his three clubs uh, that he'd been at previously. 
Um, you know, and, and kind of I think that the talk at the time was, oh, this, this guy's going to be the next best thing since sliced bread. Of course, it didn't work out. We're now starting to see that he could well be the next best thing since sliced bread, the, the form that he's in at the minute, you know, seven goals in his last six games in all competitions. Um, you know, definitely one of the, the hottest streaks of his career to date so far. But was there perhaps, you know, as I said there, that just a bit too much pressure put on him early on? And maybe I know Eric Ten Hag said after the game, uh, after his brace against Luton, that, you know, the character that he has, he, he's able to deal with this pressure and performs well on the pressure but was that pressure just a little bit too much at the start yes in a way on Hoyland it was but when you're signed by Manchester United for a, a huge transfer fee when they don't really have an out and out striker and you're being brought in to be that I think there's always going to be massive amounts of pressure in that position you're Manchester United the biggest club in the country you know probably the most fans I would guess um, and even in the world, you know, they're, they're in the top three of best supported teams. When you're brought in to be their number nine, their striker, their goal scorer, that comes with massive amounts of pressure. You know, it's especially as well, this isn't a temporary signer. This isn't them signing Vout Veghorst in January last year, who we all knew was only going to last a few months. And there wasn't much expectation on him because we'd actually seen that he wasn't really a goal scorer for Burnley. You know, this is a guy they spent big money on, was the probably the number one transfer target, certainly in the top three of transfer targets in the summer. Um, a chance for Eric Ten Hag to bring somebody in to play up front. That was his own choice. And with that, it does come massive amounts of pressure. It's unfair on Hoyland himself because, you know, he's a young lad. He's coming in. It, to be honest, to even see him at this stage looking like, you know, a top end player uh, is impressive. But, you know, you'd think normally at that age it would take a year, two years for players to really settle in and, and find their groove, whereas he, he seems to have done it pretty early. But that's just the pressure of being Manchester United, isn't it? You know, every player who plays for Manchester United is under intense scrutiny. I mean, we see this all the time. You know, Harry Maguire is like a, a microcosm of this, isn't it? He has three games where he's brilliant and everyone's going, well, you know, this is the this is why Man United bought him. He's a brilliant player. God, you know, he's the linchpin of that defence and then a month later you know he has a couple of errors and suddenly it's you know the Harry Maguire memes are everywhere that's what it's like to play for Manchester United because it's such a big club that they're always full of talking points they've got so many fans you know that they're the main sort of you know Sky Sports will push Manchester United at you you know you watch any of their coverage of Manchester United are front and centre and I think even us, you know, we talk about Manchester United all the time because they're such a, an important club, but also there's just so many storylines going on. And you look at Hoyland, he is a victim of that in the sense that there was so much pressure on him coming in. But he would also have been aware of this because it's Manchester United. When you sign to become Manchester United's number nine, much the same if you go to Real Madrid or, you know, Liverpool, there's pressure. There's always going to be massive amounts of pressure. And I think maybe we're seeing Hoyland now in the last sort of months, two months, he's maybe able to has figured out how to sort of silence the noise around him and just focus on his football. He's managed to score a few goals and now, you know, the, the train's really, really rolling. And I think we're seeing a very, very good player. And I'm excited to see, because of his age and because he should get better with time, I'm excited to see how he develops sort of over the next 18 months, whether or not this is just a purple patch and you'll sort of go back to struggling to score goals or if this is him really finding his feet and becoming you know, a 25 to 30 goal a season striker for the next 10 years for Manchester United. How crucial is 
Rasmus Hoyland's form going to be for Man United uh, as they you know kind of charge towards that that top four, the hopes of a top four, um, and and we'll say that it is the top four for now, um, rather than getting to the kind of intricacies of what needs to happen for it to be the top five. Of course, there is the opportunity for that should England finishes uh, one of the the two best placed coefficients uh, or Premier League clubs. Sorry, uh, you know kind of push up the English coefficient to uh, secure a fifth spot in the the revamped Champions League for next season. But for now, we're going to call it the top four because that makes it a lot easier, doesn't it? For I'd say even Man United's kind of aim for as well. Just aim for the top four and don't worry about anything else or whether or not your rivals have to win the Champions League again. Uh, and I'm sure they don't want to be reliant on that either. But how crucial is Rasmus Hoyland's form going to be for that? Because you look at their attacking options, um, you know, we could probably debate on a separate podcast, not that it, <laughs> many people might listen to it, but whether or not Anthony Martial was ever an out-and-out number nine. But my point is, is that he has played there for United under managers and has been kind of seen as that focal point in attack. He's out injured for the rest of the season. Rasmus Hoyland is realistically their only senior out-and-out striker that they've got in that squad. Marcus Rashford has played in that position previously and it doesn't really seem to suit him the way that Man United play on the 10th hog. So for Man United, if they are to get into that top four, they, they really need, you know, as you said there, Rasmus Hoyland, hope this isn't the purple patch. This is what is to come from Hoyland over the next, you know, kind of 10 years and he'll continue to score and he'll actually continue to stay fit as well. That's equally important for them too. I think so. And I think as well, it's not just Hoyland, it's, it's the rest of that forward group needs to to step up. I mean, you watched the game yesterday. How many chances did Manchester United have towards the end of that game when they were Luton were pushing for an equaliser and they were getting breaks? And Garnacho, I think, went through. Rashford went through. There was countless times they had a chance to finish. Fernandez went through as well to finish the game off one on one with the keeper, and then players didn't finish it off. And Manchester United need those players to step up and kill off games like yesterday because even though we'll sit here two one at Luton, it's a hard place to go. That's a good result. The fact of the matter is, is Luton were one set piece away, one, you know, dodgy deflection of the ball from getting a draw in that game. And Manchester United had three at least opportunities to kill that game off and they need to find that ruthless streak. Can't just rely on, on Hoyland to score your goals. And I think that's the key for Manchester United. It's having Hoyland fit and fire in and score goals. He will win them games, but it's unrealistic to say that he's going to be the one player. You know, they need other players to step up. We know that Rashford, has been miles off what he was last season. But imagine if Rashford was at the level he was at last season and you had Hoyland scoring goals and you had Anthony finally living up to that £80 million price tag and you had Garnacho, you know, showing that clinical edge, although Garnacho, you know, I think he's still a teenager, isn't he? He's like 19 years old or something. It's hard to expect a lot from him at this point. But I think that's what Manchester United need. They need all their players in the forward line to be fit and firing because that's how they'll, they'll break into the top four and that's how ultimately they'll challenge the teams at the top end of the Premier League because there's still a massive gulf between where Man United, Tottenham, Aston Villa, their Newcastle, their sort of teams that are in that pack below and the top three. Like That's a huge difference between them two sets of teams and Manchester United need to bridge that gap. I think from now to the end of the season, it's about seeing Hoyland continuing this, but it's also about seeing Rashford in particular. You know, you want to see him really finding his form, especially heading into you know an international competition this summer, which uh, us English have got a pretty vested interest in. You know, you want to see Marcus Rashford going into that with form and not where he is now, where he just he's a little bit hit and miss, isn't he? You know, you think he had one shot yesterday, which the keeper did a good save on, but it just doesn't look the same player he did sort of twelve months ago. But yeah, I think, I think overall, if Man United are going to get in the top four this season, Hoyland 
is going to be central to that. And if he can maybe score 10 goals from now at the end of the season, that's going to give them a really, really good chance of getting in there come the end of the season, particularly with, I think, Tottenham and Aston Villa having little wobbles of late and maybe not looking as dominant as they maybe did over the Christmas period. And just finally on Manchester United and those Champions League hopes, uh, again, we're going to assume that it's top four, not top five, not get ahead of ourselves. I think that, you know, Man City are going to be, uh, defend their European title, someone else perhaps win a European Cup that, that could make it top five. But we're going to stick with the top four for now. The idea that it is the top four. If I had to push you on one team, one word answer, who would be your favourites to qualify in the top four now? I'd probably go with Aston Villa. You know, I think they've got, five points I think they've got a, a much better goal difference as well haven't they than Manchester United so it's effectively sort of Man United need to pick up two wins more than them at the end of the season Um, and I think if I was if I was really pushed on it right now I probably would say Aston Villa would get into that that fourth position I think Tottenham that result of the weekend was was you know not a great one to say the least and I think they they just seem to have that in them a little bit. They had a really, really good start the season, but I would venture to say after that really, really good start the season, they've probably been sort of sixth or seventh in the form table since then. And I don't see a reason why that would suddenly uh, drastically improve. Man United are on the up. It's just whether or not they've left themselves too much to do from now until the end of the season. But the other factor in that is, you know, Aston Villa do have European football, which I think, you know, Emery, we know him and we all know that he gets pretty excited by European football. And I said, it's a big goal for him as a manager is to win European trophies and he's shown that his whole career. So maybe, you know, that, that could play into it that he focuses or maybe, you know, they don't rest players in the Europa conference. They, they go into the premier league games on the Sunday afternoons and they're, they're maybe a little bit tired, but I think right now it would be harsh to, to go against Aston Villa considering the, the season that they've had and considering that they're five points ahead of Manchester United in the league. That was the longest one-team answer I think anyone has delivered. All I was looking for was one word and we got an entire paragraph, story, everything else behind it. Um, but of course, yes, uh, it'll be an interesting race to see between now and the end of the campaign. Um, moving on slightly higher up the table, and of course there's only one place that you can really go if you talk about top four, you have to go towards the title. Uh, Arsenal at the weekend, Connor, a fifth win in a row in the Premier League for them. And... 21 goals in the process of that five-game winning run as well. Five against Burnley, six the previous week against West Ham. In that run as well, they've scored three against Liverpool and, and five again against Crystal Palace. On this podcast previously, we talked about you know how Arsenal, and especially in that sticky run around Christmas, the, the goals just weren't flowing as they were last season. They looked to be struggling for goals. They've completely banished that now. Second top goal scorers in the Premier League as well. What's changed? What, what has uh, Mikel Arteta tweeted to Arsenal for them to, to for the goals to start flowing again? Because, you know, as I say there, the 5-0 win against Burnley, following a 6-0 win over West Ham, in this run of five wins, they've also stuck five past Crystal Palace. They are on fire up front right now. Yeah, I mean, you felt sorry for the Burnley defenders at the weekend, didn't you? You know, they just looked bamboozled by what Arsenal were doing going forward. And I think that we're sort of seeing what this the best of this Arsenal team all the players in the front end of the pitch are firing you've even got Kai Havertz you know looking like a, a proper footballer at the minute and we saw last season at Chelsea and the sort of start of this season at Arsenal that he was struggling but they've found him you know they've got him at a level which we remember two or three years ago and he looks confident now and that's massive for them but they, they look 
just scary going forward. I mean, admittedly, the last two games they've came up against two sides who, you know, are really, really struggling at the minute. You know, West Ham have got massive problems with David Moyes in Burnley, you know, towards the bottom of the league. But they still put 11 goals in in them two games away from home. And the ruthlessness, you know, they could have just went 3-0 up in both games and went, right, we're just going to save ourselves. We're going to just slow down. But they're not. They're just going for the throat. You know, we're going to we're gonna murder you. We're going to make sure we're putting goals past you. We're going to build up this goal difference because it might be important come the end of the season. And I really, really like that. I like the fact that Arsenal are, are thinking how tight this race could be. Goal difference is going to be important. And we want to make sure that we've got that advantage. And when you're playing against teams at the bottom of the league, at this stage of the season, teams out of form like West Ham, you've got to have that rooster streak in you to build that up. And, and they've done that. So I think, you know, Mikel Arteta deserves a lot of credit. That Christmas period, you know, I think the loss against West Ham and Fulham didn't the back-to-back. We all sort of thought, well, that's probably the, the title hope's gone. It's going to be really difficult for them to pull that back round. But since then, they've shown what they can do. And, and I wonder if in a way, them two defeats have kind of taken the pressure off them a little bit because they were able to sort of, because they were a little bit further back, they were able to think, right, okay, well, maybe the title is a little bit gone now. So we'll just go and enjoy our football and we'll we'll try our best. But there isn't that intense week to week, you've got to win, you've got to win, you've got to win because you've you've dropped them points in it. It's not, I say it's not as important. It is as important, but there isn't, it's not as intense as it when you've dropped them points off. And I just wonder if that's had a big difference. Um, I mean, the other thing is, is we all saw that Arsenal, all and often documentary, maybe the kit man's done a team talk or something and it's really worked. <laughs> so a light bulb as well on one of them, I think. You know, maybe Arteta's just brought out one of his iconic uh team talk before a game and, and and the boys have just, you know, lapped it up and they've started firing. But yeah, I think um it's really interesting. I'm glad we've got a top three title race. I mean, I can't remember the last time we were sat in February and there was three teams good in for the title and you're not sure which one is going to win it come the end of the season. I think it's exciting. Does it speak for Mikel Arteta's ability as a manager? Now, you know, he's highly rated, but he's going up in his title race up against, you know, serial winners in Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola. You know, if either of those end the campaign without a trophy, you know, it's a bad year for them. They, they have, you know, they'll look back and they'll be regarded as two of the best managers of their generation. Mikel Arteta gets praised, but perhaps sometimes he doesn't, get the praise that he maybe otherwise deserves. And and the reason why I'm saying that, and this is going to be weird, this is a Tottenham fan potentially putting praise on the Arsenal manager, but, you know, that sticky period around Christmas and, and what changed, and we can even throw in that Liverpool defeat in the FA Cup. And of course, then they had that two-week break in, in with the, the Premier League winter break. But since they kind of come back from that, they've, they've looked a different side. And that speaks there, you know, he said about Arteta, he's either given them... Uh, a, a motivational team talk which you know we can we can mock all the gimmicks that he does it clearly works for that group of players it, it often does you know the light bulb I think they went on to it afterwards and, and unfortunately the kit man talk was ahead of the Tottenham game when they beat us 3-1 in, in September 2021 and I was married two days before and my wife saw me cry more around that game than I did on the wedding day I'm not sure if she still holds it against me but we'll move past it but equally as well the tactics because something's changed tactically hasn't it for us for them to be able to be this free-flowing attacking smashing teams for fun kind of approach again having struggled for goals just before Christmas so it, it speaks a lot that this is the current base of players that I've got to work with I'm not going to bring in a load of new players or whatever else I'm going to find a way to get a solution to our goal scoring issues with this group of players that I've got and that speaks a lot about Mikel Arteta himself as a manager like I said going up against two two guys that will be regarded as two of the greats of the game yeah and I think there's been criticism not 
criticism the wrong way, but there's been certainly talk of the amount of set-piece goals they're scoring. You know, that's been like a, a major kind of thing that Arsenal are, are so good at set-pieces, but they're not scoring as many goals in open play. And I think you look at the sort of last couple of games, I know against West Ham, they were pretty good on their set-pieces as well, but the game at the weekend, it wasn't set-pieces. It was, you know, scintillating football, cutting through a team, you know, winning the penalty through bamboozling defenders. That is much more a team that is played in the Man City mould, isn't it? You know, Man City are, are so free-flowing and Liverpool are exactly the same. And I think what Arteta's done, he's took the shackles off. You know, I think he is wanted... I think at the start of the season, they were maybe a bit conservative. I think they sort of thought, right, to win a title, we have to win games 1-0, 2-0, 2-1. We have to grind out results. And I think that isn't actually what Arsenal are, are good at. Arsenal at their best are a team that tears you apart. They've got Odegaard, they've got Martinelli, they've got Saka, they've got Gabriel Jesus. They've got intricate players who can tear a team, you know, from pillar to post. And I think they've went back to that. They've went back to that team who is exciting to watch, who is creating chances. And I think that's the key difference. I, I just wonder if maybe the first half of the season, Arsenal got away a little bit from what their actual identity is and what made them so successful over the last sort of 18 months. And now that they've come back to the team we kind of saw last season and they look very much like a, an exciting, dynamic attacking group. And, you know, defensively as well, they look really strong. And he's kind of um, merged them two sort of philosophies together. But I think we're, we're seeing sort of an evolution in the last month as to what Mikel Arteta wants his Arsenal team to be, which is defensively rock solid with that back four and Declan Rice being the sort of connector of defence and midfield. And then that attacking group just having you know, the chance to attack, attack, attack. I mean, how many players are in the box against Burnley when they're attacking? You know, they've got four players sitting in the box when the, the ball's on the wing, you know, and that, that's how you score goals, isn't it? You know, you get players in the box and the ball can go anywhere and you score. And I think that's what he's done. He, he's he's taken them away from what they were at the start of the season, which was a bit overly conservative. And he, he's, he's allowing them to, you know, be an attacking force that we know they're good at. Yeah, Tony Cucker getting involved in the comments. Uh, and as ever, if you are listening along live or even if you're listening afterwards, uh, check us some comments on whatever social media platform you're watching on uh, and we'll, we'll try our best to answer them. Uh, but Tony Cucker uh, suggesting that, you know, the reason for Arsenal's upturning form is he's a better striker, I suppose. Obviously, Leandro Trossard seems to kind of play more as the, the kind of, yeah, that middle male of Kai Havertz, you know, the kind of interchange. Basically, they're, they're doing what they did very well last year in interchanging, um, <laughs> which is what kind of gotten to it. So yeah, as you said there, kind of maybe they are kind of uh, going back to what worked for them previously rather than trying to kind of be a team that ground it out just finally on Arsenal on this section uh, of course their Champions League campaign gets uh, well resumes doesn't get underway resumes uh, this this week Man City had it against Copenhagen last week Arsenal up against Porto this week um, we've seen with Man City that they had that midweek game and they dropped points and we'll talk about that in a second but for Arsenal is there a worry about the fact that they're in the Champions League as well you know you look at last year and you know they did make it through to the knockouts of the Europa League and, and very quickly exited them so they didn't really have much when it got down you know to 10 games to go or 8 games to go in the title race they didn't have to focus on anything else it was just you know to quote that old TV show it was all or nothing for Arsenal um, but this year they do have that the fans won't accept an early exit from the UCL, from the Champions League, they want to go far in it. They think that they've got a team that could go very, very far in it, perhaps even towards a final, maybe even win it. 
So they won't accept an early exit from the Champions League. So Mikel Arteta and Arsenal, they've now got to balance that, haven't they? The title race and the Champions League. Is there something that they can cope with? Because last year when they didn't have to balance anything, they still came up short. I think they can. You know, I think they've got a, a strong enough group of players to compete on both fronts. Um, you know, I think the first half of the season, I don't think the Champions League games massively impacted the Premier League form. And I don't think the intensity is, you know, that different. I know the games mean more at this stage, but, you know, the players will be covering the same amount of miles, you know, in their legs in games. So I don't think it'll affect them that much. I mean, they've got a squad that is used to playing a lot of football. Um, and I think, you know, they've got a manager and they've got a, a team that is capable of of competing on sort of both fronts. And they're out the FA Cup as well, aren't they? So they don't have that to worry about. You know, I think they can go pretty gung-ho on these competitions and you know I, I don't see a reason why they aren't in the sort of you got Man City and Real Madrid probably the two obvious favourites but after that why aren't Arsenal better than the other teams in Europe you know I, I don't see a reason why they wouldn't be competing to you know get in the semi-finals and I think they're, they're more than capable of doing it so no I think it's a positive if, you, if you're doing well in the Champions League I think that's likely to follow in doing well in the Premier League I think winning games of football is better than having a midweek rest. You know, I think if you if you win midweek against FC Porto, you go to the weekend, I think you're going to have that confidence. You're going to have that um, positivity within the leg. So yeah, I think they can do both. Moving from Arsenal now to one of their title rivals and, and as we said there, Man City, perhaps in the bigger game of the weekend, biggest game of the weekend or, or definitely the one that would have attracted most uh, attention going into it, uh, dropping points at home to Chelsea. Uh, Roger, a man who we've spoken about a lot on his podcast in recent weeks because of his uh, interview with John Cross uh, the other week. Um, but Roger, is the kind of man for the big occasion, isn't it? When Man City needs someone to, to rescue them, it's quite often Rodri, or at least to get them a, a crucial goal. And again, proving that uh, a late equaliser at the weekend. Um, you look at the stats, you kind of think Man City will be disappointed. They lost possession, had more shots. A lot of them weren't actually on target. I think they managed 26 shots off target in total. Uh, 31 in total, five on target. So that would be 26 off. Chelsea actually had more shots on target than Manchester City, according to the stats. But... There was a chance and Chelsea, you know, two of those shots on target came in a quick fire double with Edison having to pull off a brilliant double save to keep it at 1-0. So will Man City look at this perhaps as a point gain rather than two drops, all things considered? Yes, they've lost ground in the title race, but it might be a crucial point coming the end of the campaign. I think so. I think I think you're right there because watching the game, it, it was an onslaught in a way from Man City, but I did think Chelsea looked pretty comfortable defensively with it. I thought they were excellent to answer the whole game. I thought Chelsea were excellent. They had a game plan. They executed it in the first half. Their counter-attacks were pretty scintillating, to be honest. They could easily have been 1-0 up before they went 1-0 up, as you mentioned there. Um, Edison making the double save. I thought Chelsea were really, really good, and I think Man City came up against a team that was well-drilled and, and looked um, ready for the game. The thing is with Man City is, is they do have these players who can, you know, get goals, you know, and even Rodri, who was a defensive midfielder, he still is a player that can come in clutch, as the Americans would say, you know, it's just been Super Bowl weekend, last weekend. It was a clutch moment, wasn't it, from him? Um, and he, he scores the goal. And I think you talk about the shots, 
it, it comes back down to how good Chelsea were, the fact that Man City weren't able to really test Petrovic all that much and, and a lot of the shots were way wide. There was a lot of block shots. Um, and I think fundamentally, you know, it's a it probably is a point gain for Man City because that was a game they didn't play at their best, but they managed to grind out a draw. You know, they could have maybe won it come the end of the game. Um, you know, we mentioned Erlen Haaland um, and his shots. I think we'll come to that probably in a minute, but Man City just lacked that clinical edge we're used to them having him. We talked about Arsenal before. You know, Arsenal currently have that clinical side of their game, whereas Man City in this game you know, really lacked that. You know, cutting edge. Sticking with that theme of cutting edge, and again, sticking with the theme of this morning, by the sounds of me, talking about strikers. Erling Haaland, someone that was so used to uh, being so clinical, um, but the weekend it just didn't seem to kind of go for him. Was it just one of those days that you have as a striker? Or, you know, I mean, you look at the misses, actually. You know, there was a couple of headers in particular that you kind of think, how's he missed the target there? Is, it, is that more of a concern, or is it just, you know, one of those days it happens for strikers, you know, that you just have them and, and nothing goes right for you? I think he had nine shots. I think in the game, I'm sure Pep said in his post-match interview, you know, if he gets nine shots, he'll score goals normally, you know, and it's just one of them this weekend. It didn't happen. Fundamentally, we, we've seen with Erlen Haaland since he signed for Man City that he scores a lot of goals, you know, that's obvious. And it's unfair to expect that every single game he's going to score. You know, that's the level he set is when he starts a game and he gets, you know, three or four shots in a game, he's probably going to score one or two goals. This game, it didn't happen for him. But I think the fact that he was finding the positions, um, that is enough for me to, to not be worried about this. You know, I think that he's just had a bad day in front of goal. It's no different to me or you, you know, making mistakes at work. You can, everyone has bad days at the office. We're not robots. We're all human. And you can all, you know, have a day where you're like, oh, I can't believe that, you know, I, I did that at work today. I mean, unfortunately for Holland, it's a, you know, pretty public platform where he's had a bad day at work. You know, he's he's not exactly, you know, we're not televised when we're at work. But for him, you know, it's it's a bad day at the office. That's all it is. And he'll bounce back from this. I've got no doubt that there will be a team in the next sort of two or three weeks that will feel the repercussions of Haaland missing chances today. I've got no doubt that he'll probably score a hat-trick within these next three or four games and, and really, you know, find the touch that we know that he has. So I think for him, it's, it's just... Yeah, you're talking about probably the first time since he's been at Man City, uh, since maybe the Community Shield final when he made his debut, that he's had one of those days. So it's not too bad. Just finally, and again, continuing the theme now, and I didn't realise I'm putting together the running order, but I've now realised it has become a striker special on this podcast. It really has. Uh, and we're going to move away from the Premier League that we so often normally talk about. And we do have to speak about one income player in particular uh, who's not having the best of times in Germany at the moment, and that is, of course, Harry Kane. Bayern Munich, another defeat at the weekend for them. They're now eight points adrift of leaders by Leverkusen, who were previously known as Leverkusen because they couldn't win a title ever in Germany. Um, but Leverkusen look heavy odds on favourites to win the Bundesliga this year. That was the last remaining trophy by the looks of it that Harry Kane could win with Bayern Munich. That and the Champions League. They lost in the Champions League last week to Lazio, so they face an uphill struggle to be able to, to progress to the quarterfinals. It's, it's all going very badly wrong for Harry Kane, isn't it, in Germany? And the kind of, all reports are that, you know, Thomas Tuchel admitting that he's not happy, Harry Kane's not happy uh, in Germany at the minute and you kind of 
you do feel a little bit sorry for him that this was the move that was supposed to kind of bring trophies for him finally in his career and it, it, it looks very unlikely that's going to work out for him at least in this campaign might in future years at Bayern Munich if he remains there but it looks very unlikely he's going to be uh, opening up his trophy cabinet and, and starting his trophy collection this year it's very unlucky isn't it you know he's went to Bayern Munich in a time where they've the, the, the look to me like a team that's in sort of redevelopment um, I actually saw the game at the weekend and they've got good pieces it's fair to say you know, they still look like a very very good team but they really struggle to get Kane sort of in the game you know it isn't as fluid as when Kane was at Spurs and obviously Kane was at Spurs for a long time so you know it was ingrained how to play with him but to me he looks like a, a striker so the team plays and he's a striker but the two aren't linked and that's a big problem. You know, that, that is probably where Bayern Munich are coming unstuck because last season Bayern Munich didn't really have a striker. I think that probably benefited them because they're a good, intricate player, whereas Kane's come in, he's a focal point. I don't think they know how to play with a focal point. And I think that's essentially becoming their undoing. I mean, that being said, Kane scored a lot of goals for Bayern Munich this season. You know, and normally against the cannon fodder in the league, he's, he's putting, you know, two goals a game away and at the weekend against Bochum they're generally a cannon for a team and I think that you would expect Bayern Munich to win that game but I think the the Thomas Tuchel situation there isn't a happy marriage and I think that that's sort of creating the situation at Bayern Munich and I think as well they're unlucky that they're coming against Bayer Leverkusen with Xabi Alonso who look um, you know, like a special today, having a special year. You know, they're having a a campaign where everything's going right, and Bayern Munich are having a campaign where things are going wrong. I think fundamentally, if Kane is at Bayern Munich for three or four years, he will win trophies. I've got no doubt about that. But there is question marks, isn't there now? Because I think the one thing you'd say with Harry Kane, watching him for Tottenham, watching him with England, is. I think there is a question about big games for him. You know, he doesn't necessarily seem to score in the big matches. He, he isn't, we used the word clutch before, didn't we, with Rodri? But I don't know if he's clutch in that sense, where the big moments come, if he's going to be the, the difference maker. And I think that that's a question mark for him. And I've got no doubt that he will come up good for Bayern Munich if he stays there for years to come. And I've got no question that even this summer with England, he will be the difference if England ought to win the European Championship. But it's concerning, you know, for, for Kane because he's went there to win things and it looks like he's going to have kind of egg on his face. He's a very lucky man that Tottenham are, are going very Spursy and I can say that as an unfortunate Tottenham fan that we're going very Spursy at this stage in the season and that there is no uh, trophy on offer for Spurs this year because then that would have looked really bad and I would have been calling for Gareth Southgate to leave him out of the England squad. If Spurs can win a trophy, he stops his all-conquering Bayern side from winning the what, uh, 98th Bundesliga title in a row or whatever it is. It's not as many as that. It's about 12, I think, wasn't it? 11 years on the spin, they've won it. Um, so you might have to leave him out of the Euro squad clearly he's cursed but yeah it's not as bad as that yet okay just on the managerial situation at Bayern Munich though and there is going to be you know you mentioned there about Jody Alonso and he's having a great season with Leverkusen of course he's been linked to the Liverpool job um, he's a previous Bayern Munich player as well he has those links to that club he's, he's doing wonders in Germany at the minute so you know of course there's going to be inevitable speculation that Liverpool are going to, to, to be facing potential competition for Alonso Um you know, and, and and the worse the situation gets for Thomas Tuchel at, at Bayern Munich, you can only see that that talk growing. But Alonso himself over the weekend, um, 
he didn't say it, but sources close to him suggesting that he favours a move back to Liverpool over a move to Bayern Munich as well. But it just kind of adds that another layer to it, doesn't it? The Bayern Munich could be looking at someone like Xabi Alonso, potentially eyeing him up as a, as a future successor to Thomas Tuchel because it doesn't look like, you know, from the outside at least, that marriage is going to last much beyond the end of the season. I know they've come out and said that he will remain the manager for now, but, you know, talk is cheap in football. We all know that. Is it, you know... Does it add another layer to it, to, to Liverpool's pursuit of Alonso? You know, he's, he's clearly someone that they favour uh, to, to replace Klopp in the summer and, and kind of having this issue at a former club of his in Germany and, and such a big club like Bayern, it, it just adds that kind of another layer to Liverpool's negotiations, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to be quite an interesting saga, isn't it, in the summer? Because you've got three potential places for Xabi Alonso. You, can, you could stay by Leverkusen. You know, that's number one. Um, does he have that return to Liverpool? But... I think his style of play is, it's not a, a smooth transition to how Jurgen Kopp plays. Is it? It's not rock and roll football. Um, so there is that question mark. And then on top of that, you know, Bayern Munich, we often see Bayern Munich strip up the best talent in German football. That's kind of the, the you know, policy, isn't it? You know, they've the forever swept up the best players and um, best coaches and whatnot in, in German football. So it's going to be very, very interesting. I think the one thing I would say from Xabi Alonso is is you just want to stay out. Of, you want the season to be finished and then these conversations happen because he's on the verge of doing something pretty special at Bayer Leverkusen. And I think the only thing that can derail that right now is this speculation around his future. Fortunately, at the minute for them, it doesn't look like there's, it's bothering them because they beat Bayern Munich last week, you know, they won at the weekend. So all this speculation has been going on for the last month or so. And they've continued to rock on. But my concern is, is at some point, if it gets to say April and maybe Liverpool or Bayern Munich go, right, you know, that's one number one target and it becomes public that that's who they're chasing. You know, does that sort of undo some of the the positivity he's got by Leverkusen? And that's the worry for me. And I think that if I was Xabi Alonso, I would almost come out and be like, my future's at Bayer Leverkusen. I'm not interested in leaving the club right. Even if he is leaving at the end of the season, I'll just put that out there right now just so that it just stops all the talk because it just seems ridiculous that Bayer Leverkusen are trying to win the Bundesliga and all anyone is talking about when it comes to German football right now is, is he going to take the Liverpool job or the Bayern Munich job? You know, I think it's actually very disrespectful as well that Bayer Leverkusen who are in this position that this is all that anyone's talking about. Just imagine it could have been far worse if Real Madrid didn't hand Carlo Ancelotti a new deal as well with him supposedly being lined up to take the Brazil job I think this summer wasn't it or next year and then that talk would have continued as well but yeah signing an extension kind of put that one to bed for sure. Connor, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really appreciate your time. As always, of course, you can keep up to date with all the latest from the Premier League, the Champions League and everything else football related across the Daily Mirror, Daily Star and Daily Express websites. But for now, it's goodbye. <laughs>